This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's episode is going to focus on a topic that uh, has long been a topic of concern for scholars and close observers of American constitutional law and American democracy, but a topic that hasn't received a lot of attention in the public until recently, especially uh, in the last week uh, with the controversy surrounding a Texas law that uh, largely restricts access to abortion and runs against many of the constitutional uh, protections in Roe versus Wade. Uh, The topic is the uh, shadow docket. And uh, we're joined by, I think, the uh, scholar and public intellectual who's done the most to elucidate the shadow docket in recent days, weeks, and months. Uh, This is uh, my colleague and friend, uh, Professor Stephen Vladek. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, Steve is the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas School of Law. He's a nationally recognized, highly regarded expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. Uh, He's argued before the Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, the various lower federal civilian and military courts, and he's testified before numerous branches of uh, our federal agencies and Congress. Uh, Most recently, he gave testimony before the committee that's investigating and thinking about the future of the Supreme Court. This is a congressional committee that Steve testified before. That testimony is available uh, online. It's 26 pages of really thoughtful analysis about uh, our topic today. Uh, Steve is also the co-host, together with our friend and colleague, Professor Bobby Chesney, of a really wonderful podcast, National Security Law. And he's CNN's lead Supreme Court analyst, as well as the author of numerous uh, law review journals, case books, and of course, uh, major articles in the popular press. Uh, He's also the executive editor of the Just Security blog and a senior editor of the Lawfare blog. And in his free time now, he's going to be completing a book uh, on the Shadow Docket, a book that will be out in uh, oh, a, a few short months, maybe even a little more than a year. But we'll soon. I, I was going to say, I think twenty-four is not my idea of a few <laughs> short months, but here's hoping. Well, when, when when starting a book, Steve, as you know, it, everything seems possible and fast until you, you get into the middle of it. And, uh, but knowing you, I'm sure you'll have it out for us uh, very soon. Uh, before we turn to our discussion uh, with Steve. We have, uh, of course, Zachary's scene-setting poem. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? The Right to Choose. Well, let's hear it. The law is like a chocolate orange that splits with the sweat of children's hands into a million symmetrical pieces distributed unevenly across the living room by the soft power of the puppy dog eyes, by the power of the tantrum or the shoe thrown sideways at a sibling or a pet. And when unpeeled and licked down, the law is tart. It is the sour we run through orchards to pick off trees, the bitterness we chase down supermarket aisles to taste. But, and keep this in mind, like the child that cradles it attentively, it has a tendency to melt, a propensity to phase change in the middle of our merriment. It is the fascination we take out of our pocket, maybe a couple days later, indistinguishable from the cold and manufactured wrapping paper, the treat that can no longer be unfolded or reshuffled or reimagined because it's already chosen. 
It makes its decisions without our input. It reserves the right to choose. I like the ending, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the ways in which uh, the law defines society instead of society defining the law. Hmm. Steve, is that accurate? Um, more often than we realize. And I think the, you know, I know we're going to spend some time later on talking about this current controversy over the Texas abortion bill. And I think it's a really good example of, of exactly what Zachary is getting at, because you have a law that is, def- that is designed not only to provoke this, you know, public debate about abortion, but a law that's designed to create the very procedural traps that has made it impossible so far for the courts to actually rule on the validity of, of, of the of the abortion restriction, so it is really very much the the tail wagging the dog in a micro sense, in the way that Zachary is referring to it at a much more macro level. And and we will definitely talk about that. Be- before we do, though, um, this is in that that space of the shadow docket where the Supreme Court is making unsigned decisions and um, decisions that have huge effect without the kind of explanations. <laughs> we're accustomed to, where we're not getting a long um, set of uh, opinions that we can read and, and chew on. What is the shadow docket, Steve? How should we understand it? Yeah, I mean, the, the shadow docket is basically a, a sort of, it's a catch-all term that was coined in 2015 by Chicago law professor Will Bode, um, basically to sort of define the negative space of everything the Supreme Court does besides those big fancy merits decisions that you know I think we're all used to encountering every May and June, um, you know, big decisions on the Second Amendment in Heller or gay marriage in Obergefell, where the Supreme Court is at the end of years of litigation, um, you know, handing down this massive precedent-setting decision. And the shadow docket is basically everything that happens before then. Um, and, and so most of that stuff is entirely anodyne and it's just nothing anyone ever cared about. We don't get fired up because the Supreme Court gives a party, you know, an extra few days to file a brief or an extra thousand words for its brief. We don't care all that much about when the Supreme Court sets cases for argument. You know, we care a little more about which cases the Supreme Court takes and which ones it doesn't. But, you know, the the real uptick that Professor Bode was sort of touching on in 2015 and that has really blown up since then has been a whole bunch more of these orders, Jeremy, um, that are doing a lot more than just case management. And, you know, the the best examples are orders that are um, altering the status quo in the lower courts at a very early stage in the litigation while the litigation works its way through. So, you know, a lower court issues an injunction that blocks, say, a controversial Trump immigration policy. Well, the Supreme Court issues an order staying that injunction for the entire duration of the appeal, which might be three years. Um, So for those three years, the policy goes into effect. Um, A lower court refuses to block, say, California COVID restrictions. Well, the Supreme Court, you know, wants to block them. So the court reaches out and issues an emergency injunction, blocking those restrictions, again, for however long it takes for litigation about them to actually reach the Supreme Court. And we've seen, Jeremy, an enormous uptick, not just in how many of these rulings we're getting from the court each term, but how large their impacts are, um, how divisive they are, even among the justices. And I think finally, as we saw you know, last Wednesday with the Texas abortion case, um, how much they're finally starting to seep into public consciousness as well. So where does the power to issue these come from? Part of what I, I hear you saying, Steve, is this is just the natural role 
of the the court of last appeal in a sense, right? But but it seems like it's more than that, also, right? Yes, I, I mean yes and no. I mean I think that the natural part's exactly right, Jeremy. That appellate courts in just about any common law system, at least I'm familiar with, um, have the power to you know issue a, what we call emergency or interim relief while the appeal takes its time to work its way up. Like on the on the theory that the court can't just drop everything and decide one crazy case at a time. Um, the, in the specific case of the court, I mean, the, there's a statute that expressly gives the Supreme Court the power to issue stays of lower court rulings pending appeal. Um, there's an even older statute called the All Writs Act, from which the court has derived the power to issue injunctions pending appeal, where the court directly blocks, say, California COVID restrictions. So as a pure exercise of statutory authority, it's pretty well established. I think the the two big things that have changed really in the last five years is how many of these rulings we're seeing where the court is changing the status quo on stays or injunctions pending appeal um, and how broadly those rulings are affecting all of us, um, whether it's by allowing the Trump administration to build the border wall, for example, um, a project that no court ever said was legal. It happened because the lower court decision blocking construction was stayed by the Supreme Court um, or a ruling like the ruling from the Supreme Court last week not blocking right Texas's controversial abortion law, which has the effect of shuttering almost all abortion providers, at least for women in their six week of pregnancy or later. So I think that the uptick is not in, it, I mean, it's in both degree and kind, Jeremy, but it's sort of it's, – it's one where the court is exercising a power it's always had to a degree and in ways that we really haven't seen it before except in maybe incredibly isolated circumstances. What does it say about uh, the, the the character of the court? We've seen uh, recently, most mo- most uh, recently in the uh, controversy over the selection of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the ways in which the Supreme Court can be sort of sucked into the petty political squabbles of the legislature. But we've also seen how it can be almost a monarchical, almost royal institution in its uh, everlasting, sort of never-changing nature. Mm-hmm. What, what does this shadow docket say about the future of the court? Uh, you know, in the abstract, I think the shadow docket doesn't tell us all that much. I think the trends that we're talking about, Zachary, really do suggest do sort of reinforce all of, I think, the most unfortunate and conspiratorial narratives about the court. Um, I mean, just to give you one example, right? So if we're just talking about this one small slice of shadow docket rulings, about stays and injunctions, about emergency relief. Um, so, so far this term, there have been 29 um, rulings respecting stays or injunctions from which at least three justices publicly dissented. Um, last term, there were 14. The term before that, there were 11. The term before that, there were five. Hmm. Um, so, you know, the court itself is is showing a lot more public divisiveness in this context. Um, but more than that, guys, the divisiveness is purely, it is strictly, it is homogeneously ideological. Where in every single one of these cases, the dissents are all coming from one side of the court or the other. You know, we we hear sometimes about the strange bedfellows that you sometimes see on the merits docket, where you might get an opinion where Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor are on the same side. Not here. And I think that only you know, the there's a whole sort of lot to, there's a lot to be said about why this is happening, where it's coming from. For those who are cynical about the court as an institution, I think a lot of what we're seeing does nothing to allay those suspicions. 
Well, and I know, Steve, you're not a cynic or not not 100% a cynic, <laughs> at least. So, so how should we understand this in a way that doesn't fall into that seemingly obvious conspiratorial partisan way of viewing it? Well, I mean, I do think, Jeremy, that, that even the benign explanation for this reflects a pretty significant and growing disconnect between the lower court's um, and the Supreme Court, right? Where if the lower courts were reading the tea leaves from the Supreme Court correctly, there ought not to be need for so many parties to be going to the Supreme Court for emergency relief because the lower court should be, you know, issuing rulings that the Supreme Court is happy with. Right. Um, and so even in the best case, right, the best explanation is that there's just some fundamental sets of misunderstandings and 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 uh, divergences between how the Supreme Court understands what it should be doing in these cases and how the lower courts do. And even that narrative, I think, is still fairly critical of the Supreme Court because the court has done so little to explain itself mm-hmm. in these cases. Um, the court has not you know, sort of suggested, for example, that it's changed any of its standards. Many of these orders, even the ones changing the status quo, come with no explanation. Um, so I guess, you know, even the most, you know, sort of, um, optimistic, neutral principled narrative that explains this uptick is one in which the Supreme Court is increasingly out of step with the lower courts. Um, the Supreme Court by right is going to win those debates. (laughs) Um, but, but I think, you know, we'd all be better off if they told us a little more often why. And, and what I'm puzzled by Steve is uh, as historians, We've always said that the power of the court comes from the respect it has, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they actually have very few methods for enforcing um, their their rulings and, and unless the public is willing to go along and other institutions, right? And so there has to be a, a view of public legitimacy. There has to be a perception, even if I don't like the way the court has ruled, that at least I know they're trying to do the right thing. Uh, this seems to shatter that, does it not? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jeremy, I think, again, it goes back to, you know, where you stand is so often a function of where you sit. Um, And I think that for those who have already been cynical about the court, there's nothing happening on the shadow docket to make that cynicism any, any, you know, any less. (laughs) Um, Right. There's there's just nothing that's going to convince them that this isn't fulfilling that narrative. Um, To me, you know, I think the, the, the hard question is to what extent do any of the justices to the right of Chief Justice Roberts actually care that these decisions and that a lot of the court's conduct more broadly in recent years has you know, really eroded in the eyes of many um, the court's legitimacy? Because I look at rulings like you know, Wednesday night's ruling in the Texas abortion case, where it would have been, I think, very easy for someone like Justice Kavanaugh to join Chief Justice Roberts, who dissented, right? Chief Justice Roberts, who is no fan of Roe or Casey, was nevertheless of the view that the Texas law should be blocked while the litigation proceeds. Um, And it seems to me that the conservatives, you know, the justices to the chief's right, either aren't aware of how negatively the court is increasingly being viewed by, you know, especially folks on the left, or they are aware (laughs) and and, and just are, are doing this anyway. And so, I, I, you know, the court's legitimacy is one of those things where it's really hard to quantify, but you just have this intuitive sense that the more the court acts in this respect, right. um, the more it's going to erode its legitimacy, at least with particular segments of the population. And the question becomes, 
do the justices themselves actually care? Right. And, and do you think, and this, this question takes us into the abortion case, do you think that really what's driving this are the policy preferences rather than the legal judgments? Of the, oh, of course. Of yeah. Yes. And, 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 and the sort of the, te- you know, the, I don't want to sort of get too into the technical weeds, but I think that's reflected, Jeremy, in ways in which the justices are twisting what used to be the sort of procedural constraints on emergency relief, um, where, you know, the sort of the, the lawyers would say, right, that whether a party is entitled to emergency relief from an appellate court while a case is working its way through is not just a question of whether they're going to win, right? If that's all we cared about, we would just we wouldn't have this long, convoluted litigation process. It's also supposed to take into account, you know, what harm is caused by ruling for them now versus not ruling for them now. It's supposed to take into account what harm is caused to the other party by ruling for them now. It's supposed to take into account the public interest. And so I think, Jeremy, part of what's happening is that for better or for worse, all of these, you know, sort of more atmospheric or secondary or, you know, societal implications have fallen out of the court's analysis so that these are basically just merits decisions dressed in procedural garb. And in that universe, it's not surprising that a six to three conservative majority is going to hand down, you know, orders that have the effect of blocking policies in blue states not blocking policies in red states, um, blocking policies from Democratic presidents and not blocking policies from Republican ones. How indicative do you think this recent ruling is for uh, how the court would rule on the merits case uh, in, in terms of the Texas abortion law? Yeah, you know, Zach, it's a good question. The Texas abortion law is so procedurally dense and complicated by design that I think it's it's hard to read it's hard to read any conclusiveness into what the court's going to do on the merits of the law with what they did Wednesday night. I mean, the the procedural difficulties that the five justices in the majority invoked in their cryptic paragraph and a half of reasoning for why they weren't going to intervene. Um, you know, I can tell a story about why those actually really are difficulties um, and why, you know, a principled jurist could look at those difficulties and say, even if I agree that the abortion ban is unconstitutional, I still don't think I can issue this particular relief at this stage. And then if all if 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 this if we looked at this order in the abstract, I think that would be the conversation to have. The problem, as Justice Kagan points out in her dissent, and I, I really think Kagan's dissent is the real, you know, barn burner of the four dissents. Um, the problem is that the court's been inconsistent on this. Right. And so, you know, even if in the abstract these procedural concerns might augur against emergency relief, the court has brushed aside even more serious procedural concerns to grant emergency relief in like religious liberty cases, for example. Um, There's an especially uh, um, controversial order the court issued in April blocking California's uh, restrictions on in-home gatherings, another one where the chief justice dissented. And so it was the same five to four lineup where the court ran roughshod over what was supposed to be a procedural bar on issuing such relief, which was you, you're only supposed to be able to issue that kind of relief based on clear, clear existing law. And the court made new law to strike down California's order. So, you know, I, I think the problem is that it's hard to take the court seriously that this is purely a procedural ruling, given that procedure hasn't stopped them before. And that's why so many people look at Wednesday's ruling and say, Roe is doomed. Right. Um, but even if you don't, I mean, even if you really are willing to take it that seriously, 
there's still the obvious and inexorable problem, guys, which is here in Texas. Roe may not be doomed, but you can't get an abortion right now after the six week of pregnancy. And so, you know, on the ground here in Texas, the difference between the Supreme Court not intervening for procedural reasons and the court signaling that Roe is dead is the distinction without a difference, at least for the moment. And, and, and as a historian, not a lawyer, I, I don't understand how they could let that happen because Roe v. Wade is still the law of the land, right? It is. I mean, this goes back to sort of process versus substance, right, Jeremy? I mean, I think the lawyers would be the first to tell you that procedural limits on the courts matter, that procedural limits are actually part of how we ensure that courts are courts and not just politicians. And again, this is why I think the real criticism of Wednesday's order depends upon holding it up against the court's other recent decisions. Um, where in a universe where this was the only major shadow docket ruling we'd gotten from the Supreme Court in years, I actually think it would be perfectly defensible. But in a universe in which the court has shown no compunction about running right over political, you know, pr- uh, procedural obstacles, um, it's a Freudian slip, right? Um, <laughs> right? Um, in, in that universe, it's just, it's so hard to understand. Like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I could tell a story in the abstract about why those procedural concerns were reason enough to not grant relief. I just can't tell that story after what we've seen over and over and over right. again over the last two and three years. Right. There also is the point that Justice Sotomayor made in her uh, – also barn burning dissent. Mm-hmm. Maybe yep. maybe the Kagan one is more of a barn burning dissent for the procedural issues yep. and the inconsistencies. Uh, but this point about vigilantism and yep. how the Texas law would seem to me to now open the door for New York or California to say, okay, you can file civil suits against people who own guns, for example, right? Well, so this, I mean, this, of course, is the question. Do we honestly believe that the same five justices would have stood on their hands um, and hid behind, you know, procedural questions, not even procedural obstacles, if this were not Texas and abortion, but this were California and guns um, or New York and speech. And, and you know, I have a hard time believing that those five justices would have found themselves hamstrung by these procedural considerations if it were a right they cared about. Um, and, and that's relevant for two reasons. One, right, I think it is an ominous portent for the future of Roe. Um, which you know is on the court's docket already this term. There's a Mississippi case with a 15-week ban that the court's set to hear later this fall. But but two, I think that Jeremy is where all the cynicism is, which is you know if you believe that the court would have if you believe that the only reason why the court you know hid behind these procedural uncertainties is because it was a red state and abortion. What does that say about the court as an institution? Right. Right. And, and on the vigilantism point, do you, how do you read Justice Sotomayor on that, right? The argument being, and again, this resonates with a historian, yep. that we have courts so that we don't encourage posses to go out and intimidate people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 she's obviously right. I guess I, the one thing I would say, and this is not a critique of Justice Sotomayor, I mean, I love her dissent. I mean, the, the first line of her dissent, we should be teaching for years about how the majority buried its hands, his heads in right. the sand. Um, the, here's the tricky part for me. I am not averse, Jeremy, in the abstract to what in calmer times we call private attorneys general, um, which is the notion that governments can enlist the citizenry to help enforce laws. Um, I'd prefer it not be laws that are unconstitutional and designed to <laughs> chill women into not exercising their constitutional rights. But I actually think it's, it's, it's hard to explain why if the abortion ban here is constitutional – the private enforcement mechanism by itself is a problem, right? The, they go together is what I'm saying. 
it's not the vigilantism by itself, Jeremy, that drives me crazy. It's that the the state is, you know, arming vigilantes while absenting itself. And that's where this departs from the private attorney general model, right? We don't usually say, hey, we're delegating our power to enforce fraud laws to private citizens and we're getting out of the business. Um, And the reason why Texas did it is so incredibly cynical, which is because Texas, you know, the people who wrote this bill know the ins and outs of federal courts doctrine and know that there is this um, decision by the en banc, the full Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals from 2001, that says that if the state has no role in enforcement, then you can't sue the state when the law they pass is unconstitutional. Um, and that's the trap here, right? The, by, by absenting the state from enforcement, it's not just that you're arming, that you're turning you know, everyday people into an anti-abortion Stasi. It's that you're also making it impossible for the providers of abortions to bring pre-enforcement challenges because there's no one for them to sue. I'm going to ask a question now that that will show that I am not a, a legal scholar in the way you are, Steve. To, to me, that en banc decision seems ludicrous because the state could not tomorrow say that, okay, we're not going to enforce slavery, but we're going to look the other way if you enslave <laughs> people, right? That would clearly be unconstitutional, right? Yes, although, although Jeremy, at the risk of being a nerd, that would be unconstitutional. That's actually an easy case because slavery is one of the only – indeed, it's the only still on the books constitutional prohibition of private conduct. Um, oh, okay, so let's make it pedophilia or something. I mean, we can That's find better. we can find a, a variety yes. of horrible yes. things. Yeah, right? I'm, just, I'm just playing law professor. Right? No, no, and, and that's very helpful actually. But so, so how can how can our how can a, our a common law system move forward operating under those assumptions? This is this is the problem, and 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 for as onerous as the anti-abortion part of the bill is, I, I actually think the real story here is the procedural Rube Goldberg contraption. Because if this flies, if this precedent holds, then we have completely restructured in a horrifying way our legal system, um, where constitutional rights are only as good as our state's legislature wants them to be. Um, And in that universe, it's not hard to imagine red states going very far in one direction, blue states going very far in the other, and all of a sudden we have two countries that don't look at all like each other. Right. Right. And, you know, this is where – so I think Chief Justice Roberts is already there. I mean I think he was signaling quite strongly in his dissent on Wednesday night that he has serious problems with this procedural scheme. I, I think the big question here is are, is he going to find you know another justice on the right to agree with him? Because I think the real way out of this mess, although it's going to be too late to help too many women in Texas um, who are going to lose their right to an abortion – or at least to a legal abortion. I think the real way out of this mess is for the court to say, actually states, you can't run and hide like that. Um, and you know, if you're going to pass a law that is vulnerable to constitutional challenge, you got to show up and defend it. Right, right. And, and so that's what I was going to ask you next, Steve. Where do we go from here? You, you think that's the, the likely pathway of Roberts finding Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or someone to, to join him on this? Maybe, although I would have hoped that that would have already happened on Wednesday. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's going to be this law, Jeremy, or if it's going to be a law in some other state. Um, I mean, Florida has already announced that it's going to try to model this legislation. Um, you, you know, it's possible that the Texas Supreme Court actually comes to the rescue. Um, mm-hmm. And, and you know, the, the Texas Supreme Court, of course, has the ultimate authority to interpret the Texas Constitution. Um, the Texas Constitution, unlike the federal Constitution, has an explicit access to courts provision. 
Hmm. Um, and so it's possible that an argument can be made that SB8 can be struck down simply on the ground that it interferes with access to courts without getting into any of the abortion um, um, chargedness. But I mean, it's the problem is, Jeremy, that no matter what happens, it's all going to take a while. Right. And, you know, uh, this is why and this is where the shadow docket looms large, where the Supreme Court had a chance to take the pressure off of that litigation. Um, right. By freezing SBA, by saying, guys, this is a mess. We want to give you some time to sort it out, but we're not going to let you just take away access to abortions in the nation's second largest state while you're doing it. Right. And that's where, you know, doctrine aside, Wednesday's decision is so disappointing because yeah. it basically says, you know, maybe when all is said and done, this law is going to be unconstitutional, both procedurally and substantively. But we're not going to block it now, which means it's going to deprive hundreds, maybe by the time it's done, thousands of women um, of the abortion that we've said they have a constitutional right to pursue. Right. It, it seemed to me, to, to my reading of your testimony that you gave to the uh, committee in, in investigating and thinking about the future of the Supreme Court, that one of the necessary responses to the shadow docket is for legislative action and, and for electoral action, right? To elect representatives who will actually take this seriously as a problem and do something about it, uh, which actually seems like a more democratic solution, right? Oh, absolutely. But but I would say – but I would love Jeremy to put some meat on the does something about it bone because um, I think one of the problems here is that the – you know, the courts have enabled for a very long time to um, so, so many different legislative initiatives to make it harder for us to enforce our constitutional rights. And the legislation I would like to see is legislation that makes it easier for us to enforce right, our constitutional right. rights. Um, and, you know, you can you can fix what, to my mind, are a lot of the problems with the shadow docket without touching the Supreme Court's jurisdiction. Um, hmm. As as I think so many you know reactionary folks want to do, you can just take pressure off the docket. You can you know provide for more expedited merits appeals in the cases where it looks like the court is interested. You can make it you know you can clear away some of these procedural obstacles that are tripping up courts at the early stages of some of this right. litigation. Right, right. And it's just you know I, I had thought that we were heading toward that conversation, Jeremy, last summer after the George Floyd protests and. The reactions thereto, and the you know the national conversation, it seemed like we were starting to have about government accountability, um, and the fact that we can't even finish that conversation, I think, is just you know the most depressing and disillusioning part of all of this to me, which is, you know, we should be able to all agree that it's vitally important to have some mechanism for challenging state laws that take away clear constitutional rights, even if we don't like them. Right. When was the last time, Steve, that we seriously rethought these questions, really addressed them? I mean, not really in our lifetimes, Jeremy. Um, you know, Congress last said anything meaningful about the Supreme Court's jurisdiction in 1988. Um, so, you know, 33 years ago. Um, Congress last said anything meaningful about, you know, claims against the federal government in this space really about the same time, and you can even go back to 1974, but I don't think Congress has had this kind of structural conversation about government accountability since right after World War II, mm -hmm. um, when it passes the Administrative Procedure Act, when it right. passes the Federal Tort Claims Act, when it, you know, for the first time really tries to think through comprehensively how we're going to ensure that constitutional rights are protected in this country. And, you know, I mean, Jeremy, that's 75 years ago now, and this is a very different Supreme Court today. 
I, I was thinking about just that, that, that it's been 75 years since uh, I think we as historians could point to a moment when this was a, a centrally important discussion. And, and frankly, and frankly, Jeremy, it's been even longer since Congress really thought carefully about states infringing hmm. on constitutional rights. Hmm. Um, you know, the the landmark statute that really sort of enlists the federal courts in pushing back against state constitutional violations um, is what we today shorthand as Section 1983, which was enacted in 1871. Yes. And, you know, Congress has done some little things here and there since then. But, I mean, one of the points that I've tried to make both to the you know, Supreme Court Reform Commission and to Congress directly is, you know, yes, the Supreme Court keeps handing down these terrible anti-accountability, in many respects, anti-democratic decisions, but you're not doing anything to stop them. Right. And, and you know, the, the reaction is, well, what, we, we can't do anything. And, you know, the answer is, well, yes, you can. I mean, maybe you can't take away all the court's jurisdiction. Like, I, I do believe there are limits on Congress's power to strip the court's jurisdiction. But the notion that it's that or nothing um, is superficial to the point of absurdity. Right, right. And, and one of the, the points of our podcast each week is, of course, that what we take for granted today reflects an evolving history. Yep. And, and over time, the, this issue has loomed larger and larger, and it's not built into the necessary fabric of how the Supreme Court operates. This can be reversed or redesigned. That's right. And, and frankly, I, mean, and I'm, you know, I am often – I've been, as you as you generously said at the top, I've been one of the leading voices, leading critics of of the sort of the rise of the shadow docket, which means I'm also a target for those who would defend it, and they usually caricature the critiques, right? That I just don't like. I don't like the results the court is reaching, or I'm just mad that they're not, you know, sort of doing things more in a particularly more procedural way, you know, or or that I don't like an emergency docket at all, right? And these are all just caricatures. I mean, the reality is every court needs an emergency docket. Um, but, you know, just, Jeremy, a brief aside on the historical point. Into the 1980s, the way the court handled emergencies was individual justices decided them in chambers. Justices would have oral argument in their chambers. They would issue opinions in their own name just as themselves, and that would be the end of it. And that had multiple virtues. One, the parties got to be heard. Um, two, so anything that a circuit justice did could be overruled by the full court, right? So it had limited precedential effect. Um, and three, it really sort of got the court thinking about what is the difference between an emergency and a non-emergency, where the circuit justice, if he had time, was encouraged to kick the case to the merits docket to the full court. Hmm. Um, and it's only really since the 1970s, really the mid-1980s, that that practice has fallen by the wayside and that you know the full court now handles just about all contentious emergency applications with less process than they were receiving in the good old days of being handled by the individual circuit justice and chambers. Yeah, I mean, it seems arbitrary in a certain way, right? If you happen to get Alito versus Kagan, depending on which which jurisdiction you're in, right? That, that's right. Although I think in the old days, you know, the justices were 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 instructed and tried very hard, with one exception, to follow the notion that they weren't supposed to rule how they would rule. They were supposed to rule how they thought the court would rule. Um, and this, of course, leads Thurgood Marshall in the Cambodia bombing case in 1973. Yes to side with the government, right? To side with the Nixon administration on the right. Cambodia bombing, not because it's what he wanted, but because he thought it's what the majority of the court would want. Right. Um, and I think, you know, it was largely because Justice William O. Douglas would so often just defy the rest of the court on this stuff <laughs> that we saw this move toward centralization and consolidation. Um, but, you know, Jeremy, there are no Douglases on the court right now. 
And of course, he was the longest serving justice, right? So he was uh, the longest serving, and by the end of his career, he was not necessarily um, keeping up with the relevant doctrinal limits on his power. I mean, like you know, there's a story you can tell about why the court reacted the way it did in the late '70s and '80s, but I just think it reacted too far in the other direction. Yes, yes. So, so Steve, for our closing question, we always like to take all the information that, that and you've given us so much here, and really think about what what it is that our listeners should pay attention to going forward, and and, and how they could make a difference. Um, if if our listeners share your concerns about the shadow docket, I hope they do. Uh, and uh, if they want to be well informed and they want to be a part of the discussion and make make this more of an issue, as I think it should be, that we pay attention to. Other than reading your your work, which they all should do, uh, what are other suggestions you have? Yeah, I mean, I think you know this is a, this is a good place where I think just sort of staying on top of developments is very important. Staying informed, um, you know, one of my projects has been to really push the Supreme Court press corps to pay a lot more attention to the shadow docket. You know, and I think whether because of me or just because events have overtaken it, I think they're starting to. Yes. But you know, I, I think it's incumbent upon us also. You know, if, those of us who Interact with our elected representatives, talking to them about it, making sure they understand what's going on. Um, you know, public education, Jeremy, I think is so much of the problem here. And trying to sort of point out that, like, there's a difference between not liking what the Supreme Court is ruling and not liking how the Supreme Court is doing it. Um, and I think that distinction has gotten lost, as so many other nuanced distinctions have in contemporary discourse. But if I could beseech listeners to do one thing, it's just to have an appreciation that those are two very different questions and those are two very different critiques. Right. So don't just judge the outcome. There, there, there are plenty of good reasons to be angry yep. about where the court stood on Wednesday's uh, decision. But um, what, what's, what I think you're saying, Steve, is also pay close attention to how they, how they got to that shadow docket decision on one. That's right. I mean, and just a good counterexample for me, Jeremy, is the week before um, the abortion decision, we had two high profile shadow docket rulings. We had the court rejecting the Biden administration's request to stay a lower court decision that had ordered the administration to reinstitute the remain in Mexico asylum policy, which came with one sentence of explanation. Um, and we had the um, the granting of a stay, uh, the, the vacating of a stay in this eviction moratorium case. Um, which came with eight pages of explanation. Right. Um, you know, I, I would not have come out the way the court did in the eviction moratorium case, but I have no procedural objections to what they did. Right. Gotcha. They, they they had an emergency. They took the case. They heard, They took briefs. They wrote an eight-page opinion explaining why they thought the applicants had made out their case for relief. Like, that's how it's supposed to go. <laughs> um, and there's just, you know, that that is the first example I can think of where the court actually, I think, handled a shadow docket case exactly the right way, I think is, is you know, further proof that this is both incredibly complicated and incredibly nuanced, but also incredibly important. Well, and this echoes what you've been saying in many forms and what I've seen others say, which is, you know, one of the real issues here is getting the court to explain its decisions at the very yep. least so they don't appear arbitrary. And, and indeed. And so that and so that you and I and, you know, and Zachary and all of your listeners can read the decisions for ourselves. Right. And not, and not be left to speculate as to why the justices have done thing A when they didn't do thing B two weeks ago. Exactly. Exactly. Zachary, what, what do you think? Do, do you think that um, young people like yourself who care about substantive issues also are interested in the Supreme Court? Because the Supreme Court's always fascinating in good and bad ways. Uh, is, is the shadow docket something that's coming onto people's radar screens? And do you think it's a topic that young people could be motivated to pay more attention to? I think young people are are definitely acutely aware of the um, 
undemocratic nature of the Supreme Court. Now, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, obviously, it's implicit in the structure of the court today. Uh, I think that young people are also, though, much more inclined to think about judicial reform. Uh, I think it, it's particularly telling that when myself and, and, and my peers learn about our legal system for the first time, often our first reaction is not, this is how it should be, this is how this, this is what makes the most sense, but we need to change this. Hmm. Um, and at the very least, I think we're finally starting to, to question um, the sort of basic assumptions we've always had about our legal system, uh, while at the same time making sure that we, we abide by those norms and, 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 and holding people to the legal standards that they need to be held to. Right, right. In a certain way, you want to be for the rule of law, but not always support the way the rule of law is executed by Right. And, and we have to be able to do both. At the right. Same time. right. Well, I think this discussion has helped us to think about how we can do both. And I want to thank you, Steve, uh, in particular, uh, Steve Vladek, uh, I think the person doing the best work on this topic, writing extensively. Please look for his his uh, various articles and soon to be published book. We're, we're, <laughs> we're promoting it a little early, but that's OK. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. thank you guys for having me. I mean, this is this is exactly what I'm hoping to accomplish. And Zachary, thank you for your poem and for your insights. And thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.